0: Uh, let's go ahead and dive into what we're talking about this morning. We are in the middle of our series on First Samuel. We're calling it Kings and Prophets, and I have a question for you to kick it off. My question for you is this. From 1 to 10, you're going to rank yourself, and like you can just like do it in your head for a second. From 1 to 10, how cynical are you? One being, like, not cynical at all. I normally believe the best about people, like, in fact, maybe too much that I get a little hoodwinked, right? Or 10, really cynical. Anything that happens at any time, in any place, you imagine the worst of the person that is around you, okay? So 1 to 10, how cynical are you? All right, you got it in your head? You're thinking it? All right, if you're brave enough shoot up your number. How cynical are you? A one, a five, a six, a eight, a four, a two, a seven, a ten, a nine. Okay, two. Great. Great. This is great. We're all over the map. I love it. Okay. How cynical are you? Here's the thing. We live in a culture that is chock full of cynicism, where we assume the worst about people, all the time and honestly over the past couple years a lot of us are like well but can you blame us like we've just had way too many examples of like fallen church leaders right fallen political leaders all of a sudden the news hits that something else has come to light and inside of us we're like oh that sucks but am i surprised no no, I'm not really surprised. Um, we're saddened, but we're not surprised. In fact, I think cynicism is hard to name in ourselves, like because it's kind of like how do you cook a frog? Like you put it in a regular temperature water and you just slowly heat it up. Like I think this is what happens with cynicism. We don't realize how cynical we have become. And so what I've been paying attention to for the past couple of weeks is hearing this phrase. Of course, that's the way it is of course they did that, of course, of course that happened, right? It's difficult to see, but when you start hearing that phrase and recognizing that that is actually a cue, that cynicism is there, then you start to pay attention to it. You hear that one of your friend's marriages is falling apart, and you're like, of course it is. The car that you own got sideswiped in the parking lot, of course that happened, There's news of another well-known figure admitting to some sort of moral failing. Of, Of course, of course that happened. And when we assume the worst about other people, we slowly sink deeper and deeper and deeper into despair. The cynicism has cynicism has this way of eroding any sense of hope that God could possibly still be at work in the midst of some situation. And when we succumb to cynicism and despair, then we just begin to spiral. And what happens when we're spiraling, we don't even realize it, but we start looking to all of these short-term solutions, these short-term fixes that we're just like, well, if I just do this, it'll make the problem go away. And when we talk about making a problem go away, we're not like really fixing it. It's just like, I've at least numbed myself to the reality of the situation, right? So we grab one more banana muffin and we grab one more slice of pumpkin pie, one more drink, one more other substance to just numb. Whatever that feeling is. We, we turn on our phone for hours of entertainment to just make the problem go away. We cancel some people while elevating others as like semi-messiahs. Semi, uh, all just so like in hopes that maybe they'll fix it. Like this is the solution if we all just listen to this person, then it'll go away. And it's difficult to not get swept up in all of that. It's difficult to know how to hold on to hope rather than getting swept up in the current of cynicism. And today what we're going to look at in the book of 1 Samuel is actually how David kept himself from getting swept up in cynicism and how David held on to hope even though everything seemed to be going wrong, right? now, If you remember from last week, David's on the run for his life. Saul, who was the current king of Israel, knew that God's anointing had left Saul, had left him, and had fallen on David. That David was actually going to be the next king. And David, like, success after success after success after success, right? Like David and Goliath first, but then it's one battle after the next after the next. And David has all of these successes. And you remember, they start singing this song. They start singing this song that, like, oh, Saul's killed thousands, but David's killed 10,000, right? And they're singing a song, and this song is, like, ear grating to Saul's ears, just as my song was probably ear grating to your ears you're grading is that a thing okay right and Saul becomes more and more envious of David and we talked about the dangers of envy last week instead of humbling himself and trusting God Saul doubles down he does everything he can to keep the kingdom for himself which in this case means he's got to kill David And the more that Saul tries to hold on to his kingdom, the less king-like Saul becomes. Envy sort of begins to destroy his life and enslave him more and more and more and more. Now, at first, when Saul starts killing David, it's like this casual killing. Like, if you can casually kill someone... It's sort of like he sends David to the front lines hoping that David will just die. He takes a spear and he like casually just chucks it. And he's like, if you get in the way of my spear, it's not my fault that you died, right? Saul's like casually trying to kill David. But slowly or quickly, it gets worse and worse and worse. As the narrative goes on, the assassination attempts get more aggressive. And David's like, this isn't good. I got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here. And so David goes to Jonathan, who Saul's son, who we learned about last week that like Jonathan also saw that David was anointed by God. But instead of getting jealous, even though he really should have been the next king, instead of getting jealous, he like lays his throne down at David's feet and says like, "You are God's anointed. I will submit to what God wants." I will lay my royal robe at your feet. He supports David being king because he loves David and he desires to be obedient to God. But, David, but Jonathan, Jonathan doesn't believe that his dad is really trying to kill David he like he's like naive to the whole thing he's like no no no, everybody's good we're fine it's almost like a little Pollyanna a little bit like Jonathan come on you don't see what's he threw a spear across the room in David's general direction and Jonathan's like no I can't believe that my dad would ever harm David and so David's like, listen, Jonathan, I gotta get you on my like, I gotta get you on my team, I gotta get you to see the truth. And so David and Jonathan come up with a plan to help Jonathan figure out that Saul really does want to kill him, what Saul's true intentions are. Now, sure enough, after this plan is enacted, it comes to life that Saul really, 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 really wants to kill David. And so Jonathan helps him escape the city and run away. Now, This is the perfect situation for David to give in to cynicism and despair, like the perfect. He's been promised the kingdom, and now he's hiding in caves and mountainsides, trying not to be killed. He had defended his kingdom. He served Saul faithfully. He risked his entire life. And now, he's like hiding in the wilderness, being hunted like a dog. Except you don't really hunt dogs. I was thinking about that phrase. Like, it's more like hunted like a deer. But that doesn't sound nearly as aggressive. So maybe hunted like a pig. What? You're mad at, oh. So Patrick's car got hit by a deer the other day. Sorry, Patrick. Patrick hunted. We'll go back to the dog. Hunted like a dog. Anyways, if there's ever been a time to say, of course I'm being hunted like a dog, it's this one. It's this one. Of course that's happening. It could have been the perfect time for David to give into despair and grab whatever was the easiest and quickest fix at the moment and just be like, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter anymore. But here's the thing. David consistently Reject cynicism and despair, and he chooses to continue to hope and trust that God has got this. That God's like working all of it out. That God's purposes will win out. Now we don't have time to look at all of the stories where this happens, but we're just going to look at one, and it's found in chapter twenty-four. So if you want to open your Bibles, if you have an app or a Bible with you, you're going to open it to First uh, Samuel chapter twenty-four. And here's the context. As David's been on the run, there's a bunch of people, a bunch of outcasts, nobodies of society that nobody wanted around. And they all wind up following David and sort of have him become their commander. And they're hiding with him. And while he's hiding, every so often, there's sort of like an attack on Israel's borders. Remember this, that the Philistines and the Amalek. Uh, Amal- uh, Amal- uh, Amalekites, they come and they're like crashing in on the borders and they're raiding the towns and everything. Okay, anytime that happens, David, even though he's in hiding, is like, man, get on your horses, grab your plowshares, let's go. And they go to the front lines and they like defeat the army and then they're like, okay, quick, Saul's gonna know we're here. We got to get back into hiding, right? So they're doing this thing where they're like, even though they're in hiding, Even though Saul has treated them like garbage, they're still coming out, risking their lives and protecting the borders of their nation. And then they go back and they hide. Because as soon as Saul hears that a battle has happened, he knows David's there. And him and his army, Not to go fight the battle, not to help the weak and defend the vulnerable, but to go find David and hunt him down. They go after that battle location to try to get David. And Saul is totally enslaved and sidelined by all of this envy. Every time Saul comes close to killing David, David somehow manages to get away. Now, here's the story that I love. This is the one, I picked this one because I love this story the most out of all the David and Saul shenanigans. Um, I loved this story even from when I was a child. And I'll be really honest with you about why I loved this story. They always let us act it out when we did it in Sunday school. And it's a story about a guy urinating. And I just, when I was a kid, I thought it was the funniest thing in the world to act out this story. Right? Okay, Good. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love that when you were a kid? Okay, anyways, we always got to add, and I just thought it was hilarious. Okay, so here's what's happening in the story David and his men are hiding, and I mean, they didn't let us actually urinate. Like, it was just you pretend. Do we got this? We're going to be real mature about this story, guys. Okay, David and his men, they're hiding in this cave after one of the battles, and they know Saul and his men are going after them. Saul is out with his 3,000 men to try to find David, and he's looking around for David, and they can't find him, but all of a sudden, Saul's like, I've got to relieve myself. And so Saul gets off his horse, and he goes into a cave in some general direction. He has no idea that David and his men are hiding in said cave. He's just like, that looks like a good place to pee. And so he gets off his horse and he goes into the cave and he starts urinating in the cave. And the men inside the cave, this is what they say in verse 4. The men say to David, they say, this, I imagine them whispering it. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, The men that are speaking to David and telling him, what they're trying to prompt him to go do is like, look, like clearly, like Saul is defecating in this cave, like go kill him, we're this close, what are the odds, this is not a coincidence, like go kill him, go kill him now, nobody will blame you for this, surely this is what God wants you to do, he's right within your reach, like go ahead and just take him, like get him, right? You can finally get him back for all that he has done to you. Now, the next part of the story is part of the reason why as a child, and even now, I think it's just weird. It's such a strange story. Um, and, I've, and I've asked Zach about this before because there must be like a fundamental difference in the mindset of a guy versus a girl, girl when you're urinating outside. Like, I know there's posture differences. I get it. But there must be a mindset difference, too. Because when I have to do that, like when we're hiking or camping or whatever, this is my mindset. Who's there? I heard a leaf rustle. What's happening? Can anybody see me? Like, I am paying attention to all the things. But in this story, Saul is like a, it seems like he's oblivious. Like I don't understand, is this just Saul or is this all guys? I don't know. Scripture says that David sneaks up on Saul while he's going to the bathroom and he sneaks up so craftily that he's able to cut a corner of his robe off. Saul doesn't even notice. He just like finishes and then gets up and leaves the cave and goes on his merry way. And I'm like, how is that possible? possible like are men just completely oblivious to everything when they're urinating they're like bathroom time on brains off I don't know sorry these are just the questions I have I don't understand now here's what happens next Saul leaves the cave David's standing there with the piece of uh robe immediately after David cuts this robe like he doesn't kill him but he does cut this rope. And I imagine it's some sort of like, like token of like, I see, look what I did. Look what I did, right? But immediately after David does it, David feels bad. He didn't kill Saul, but he did kind of make a mockery of him. And he feels bad about even that. He remembers that this, per- this is the person that God has anointed as king. Maybe he's fallen away and maybe David's supposed to be the next king. But there's this recognition that like, oh. He's still a child of God. He's still God's anointed. And he thinks to himself, who am I to put a hand against him? Even if I'm just cutting a square off his robe. Even after all that Saul has done to David, David isn't cynical about what God might do in Saul's life. Now that doesn't mean that David is ignorant of who Saul currently is or what he's trying to do. David gets that Saul is trying to kill him. But David never loses hope of what God might do in Saul's life. Hope isn't a denial about what is actually happening. It's the presence of God even in the midst of suffering and difficult circumstances. And David recognized that God, even in this, is still at work. God might do something even now. And so this is what the narrator tells us, starting in verse 8, if you want to read along. Then David went out to the cave and called out to Saul, right? So Saul has left the cave. David's there with the corner of the rope. And he leaves, and then David kind of goes after him. David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed low and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He puts himself in this total vulnerable position. And he said to Saul, why do you listen to men when they say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord has delivered you into my hands in this cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I didn't kill you. See, there's nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And then we jump ahead a little bit, and the story continues. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? It's this recognition in Saul that like, oh, this didn't go the way that I thought. It's this momentary realization that Saul's like, ooh, what are we doing here? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. And when a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you've treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul and then Saul returned home. But David and his men went to the stronghold. Now, every indication in this passage, it seems like this is the moment of reconciliation between David and Saul. Like, if we stopped the story here, it'd be like, oh, man, this is beautiful. What, what a great moment. Like, they're friends again, and they're going to stop trying to kill each other. But that's not, no, that doesn't happen. Like, they go away from this moment, and for whatever reason, what, the envy that has enslaved Saul, although temporarily dissipated, just comes back with a fury. It isn't the only time that a story like this comes up. There's multiple opportunities for David to kill Saul. And again and again, he doesn't. Instead, David trusts, and despite, and despite Saul's evil, God, he trusts that God is going to work out his purposes for both David and for the kingdom. And David refuses to grab the easy thing, which is to just be like, we're done you're done. David trusts that God will do what he says he's going to do, that he's going to raise up a king. Now for us, it can be really easy to fall into the trap that David alluded. When things aren't going the way that we expect, it's easy to try to take things into our own hands. It's easy to try to see like when there's an open window or open opportunity to move in and and get you, right? To think, oh, this must be what God has given me to do. Like, this must be my opportunity to do that. When someone has wronged us, when we listen to the news, we become cynical about all the things, and we lose hope that God could possibly do anything in the midst of that situation. That God could possibly redeem it. That God could possibly do anything good. The irony is that we have the ultimate antidote for cynicism, in Christ. Jesus dies this excruciating death in front of everyone. He's buried. Everyone has the right to say in that moment, of course. Of course they killed him. Of course he died. Of course all of the good things that were happening are now over. Of course. Like despair in that moment for Jesus's followers is, was full set in. Hope was lost. The story seemed over. But then, on the third day, resurrection. The king of heaven and earth is raised up in a demonstration that not even death has power enough to hold him. That nothing can thwart the plans of God to raise up a king. And guys, that is what the gospel is. That's what we're called to trust in. We're not called to trust in a theological tenets or belief. We're actually called to trust in that despite human evil, God will work out his purposes for the kingdom of heaven here on earth. That despite what's happening in the news or with political leaders or with church leaders or, or with the people in your life that have uh, epically failed you, that God will work out his purposes for you and that God is going to do what he promised to do that he is going to set up his kingdom in our midst, that even when it feels like we are running through the wilderness for our lives, he is working all things for our good, that he is working to raise up a king, that he is working to redeem us and this whole world. And the amazing thing is, is that we actually get to participate in this never-ending hope and trust that God is bringing dead things to life, and that is what the good news is all about. That's what the kingdom is all about. That this king of this kingdom, he's coming. He has come. He's here. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. It's kind of how do we live this thing out? Sometimes we find ourselves in a stage of life where we've sort of reduced faith to just things that we believe, right? God is king. He is life. He is hope. Got it. Jesus, son of God. Check. Check. We believe in the set of doctrine. We believe in these things. But God is calling us to more than just a set of theological beliefs. He's like belief and faith, they're not synonymous. Part of what lets cynicism fester and grow is that we've bought into this idea that as long as I believe the right things, I'm good. And I don't actually have to live it out. That I don't actually have to practice it. And the reality is, is that, cynic, uh, that intellectual ideas of faith and hope and love are ripe for cynicism. Because they're rooted in these existential ideas of like, oh, I like love. I like belief. I like hope out there. I don't really know what that means for me here. I don't know how to practice it. I don't know how to be David and walk through the wilderness with faith and hope and trust if we're going to break through cynicism and find a path like David of faithfulness and trusting and never giving up hope, we've got to engage some of the practices that David engaged. Now, what's really interesting is as you go through the book of Psalms, many of those are prayers and poems which David wrote. What you find at the top of the chapter headings are things that say stuff like, um, uh, uh, attributed to David... When God saved him from Saul, right? There's many, many psalms like this. Um, Psalm 18, 52, uh, 53, 57. They're all psalms that are attributed that David wrote as prayers to God in the middle of this time where he is being hunted down in the wilderness. And they're fascinating to read in light of the context that they were probably written in because all of them are about like trusting God, remaining humble, reminding himself of who he is, and reminding himself of who God is. These are all themes that we've been looking at throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're actually going to look at part of one of those psalms, and we're going to try to figure out what is it that we need that David had that kept him from walking in this path of cynicism, all right? So if you have a Bible, you have your app, you're going to open it to Psalm 18, We're going to look at three different stanzas. All right? And we're going we're gonna to group project this. Okay? Now, I've, we've talked about this before, but if you're new with us, we do a lot of, like, group work on Sunday morning or group conversations on Sunday morning. And part of the reason we do this is because, again, we are a body of believers, and we believe that this is a part of strengthening our muscles as a body. Um, so this may feel uncomfortable, and you may be like, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I get it. Nobody did. You're going to anyways, and that's okay. All right? So here's what we're going to do. Um, over here, if you're in this section, you guys are going to look at verses 1 through 3. That's going to be your stanza. What you're doing is you're going to read the passage. And you're going to point out any themes that, you've previously, that have previously come up in the book of First Samuel. So anything we've talked about over the past couple weeks. So I gave you some, like, clues so you didn't, like, just have to know. You're looking for themes of trust dependence, who God is, humility, who I am, and the kingdom, okay? So you guys are one through three. You're going to talk together. So break up in little groups, not a whole big group. That's too many people. Like groups of three or four here. In the middle, you guys are 16 through 18. Remember, don't just talk to the person that you came with, right? We're going to be buddies today. Over here, you guys are 25 through 30, all right? So find your group, talk about, read it together, talk about these things, and then we're going to debrief. Go, We're going to go ahead and come together whole group again I know that there's probably more and great questions that came up we're going to start over here with this group uh one through three what were some of the things that you saw that resembled some of the themes that we um you can't volunteer other people Don <laughs> some of the things that came up in verses one through three you can just say it loud Can you read like where where was one example of trust? He turned to the Lord. He's our rock and our shield. It's remembering who God was that piece of trust and dependence. Any others? beautiful well said well said thank you yeah any others he's my stronghold he just keeps calling out the names of god yes good okay jumping over here you guys had verses 16 through 18 what'd you guys come up with an image of just total dependence. Mm, that's good Mm. I needed God. Yeah. That's good. Yes. That's great. Good. Okay. And over here, uh, you guys had verses 25 through 30. cool that's great very good give yourself a round of applause you did it that was such a weak round of applause give yourself a round of applause you did it Yeah, here's the thing, like, you can dive more into Psalm 18, um, and you do begin to see a lot of these themes of naming it as who God is, and because of who God is, who it is that we are, and then this, like, radical throwing on dependence of, like, hey, maybe I don't see it, I don't see that this is always happening, but I am going to trust that, like, the haughty are being brought low, and that the humble are being raised up, and that you are working, even though everything in my heart says, Matt, this is dumb, right? God, you are doing something. I wonder if part of the reason why David was able to combat that cynicism. That was just coming for him. That would have been so easy. Like, I think that we think, oh, no, everyone was like, that was an ancient time. Everyone was running around in little loincloths. Like, <laughs> nobody was cynical about anything. That was just a free time or whatever. I don't know. Um, and we think that, like, human emotions would have been so much different back then. But they weren't. I'm sure David looked at people pillaging his kingdom, like the nation, and was just like, what the heck is going on? He saw corruption from the top down, and he was like, what, God? Just let me in here. I will set it right, right? He saw all of these things, and he was like, why is this happening? And just as a reminder, when David is writing this, like he has been spared from Saul this one time, but the kingdom is still a mess, right? There are still people in positions of leadership and power and control that should not be. And here David is saying, I trust in your kingdom, you are, 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 are with me, you are my mighty fortress, you are my rock, you are my redeemer. He's, he's trusting in something that hasn't fully happened yet. He's believing and enacting this faith that hasn't fully come to fruition yet. He's hoping for it, he's waiting for it, he's anticipating it, and he's looking for it. And I think that part of the reason David is able to do that is because he has this deep abiding prayer life where he keeps coming back to the center with God. Remind me who you are, God. Remind me who I am. Let me trust in this again. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to just take an opportunity to highlight some prayer practices for us to engage in. Now, these are prayer practices and prayer postures that aren't necessarily represented like here's verse and here and here's in Psalm 18. I didn't want to just draw a direct connection. I wanted it to connect to something that we've been using as a congregation for a while. And we've never highlighted them specifically, but I wanted to do it this morning. So on the white table, there's like a little a piece of paper, and you can grab those. But we've been engaging um, sometimes during the service in some different prayer postures, and oftentimes they come back to the same prayer postures again and again. It's a prayer of surrender, and it's a prayer of generosity, and it's a prayer of mission. And I wanted to invite you into these prayer postures because if you're in a season where you're like, yeah, I'm really struggling with some cynicism. I know it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, but I don't buy it maybe what we need to do is deeply embed ourselves in some prayer right now, reminding ourselves of who we are and who God is and enacting not just our theological beliefs and thoughts about who God is, but begin to practice them with our whole selves. And so we're going to just walk through these for a second um, as if we've never done them before. Um, For those of you who, who maybe haven't seen them before, Um, the first one is a posture of surrender. Each one comes with a body, a body posture. Oh my gosh, I'm trapped. (laughs) Each one of these comes with a body movement or a body posture. And there's nothing like super spiritual about that positioning of our body. Instead, it's simply a way to make tangible the thing that we're trying to make happen in our heart. That there's this reality that sometimes we can't think our way into a new action, but we have to act our way into a new way of thinking. And putting our whole body into it helps us do that. This prayer is all about surrender, okay? So we start with our arms and our fists like this, like we're about ready to enter the boxing ring. Or, and it's really a reality that we have been in the boxing ring for a while, that we've been trying to fight, And then we move our hands to a place of surrender where we move our hands up over our head or, you know, if you're like, "Ah, I'm really more comfortable with this, that's fine too. But we move our hands to a posture of surrender. Um, Let's go ahead and we're going to read this prayer together. I just want to double check. What is on your screen is on your paper, right? That's the same. Okay, good. Is that the bottom one? Can we go, uh, James, go up? Yep, this one. Okay. Okay. So we're going to read this together, and we're going to just pray it out, all right? Lord, I confess that I spend too much time defending and fighting my position, my attitudes, my opinions, and my behavior. I confess that I often fight against you, your plans, and your will. I confess that these hands do not reflect how you lived and how you have experienced you. Instead, I choose to hold my hands up and surrender. All I have to you today, I choose surrender. Now, this prayer is written for you um, in case you're like, I don't know words. And that's fine. You can just read the words. That's perfectly acceptable. But as you begin to embody this prayer, perhaps what you'd want to do is actually confess the areas of your life where you are fighting, God, I am fighting with my sister right now so badly. God, I am fighting to try to make ends meet. I am fighting with my kid to make them do what I know that they need to do. I am fighting against you. I do not want to be obedient, right? Do you see how these words can begin to guide and direct your prayer for your specific circumstances? And then each time we just name the ways that we are fighting against God and fighting with each other and then move to a place of surrender. God, I give it up. (laughs) Like, I can't make this happen. I'm not going to be the one to, like, make all the changes and make people do what I want them to do. Like, I'm not, it's not even about that. I'm just going to surrender to you. I surrender. I surrender all I have to you. Then the second prayer posture, this is one of generosity. And again, you, you, Start with your hands clenched. It's one where you're sort of saying, like, I have been holding on to everything, and I'm going to release it. I'm going to live this open-handed generosity. So let's go ahead and and let's read this um, prayer together. Lord, I confess I spend too much time desperately trying to hold on to what I believe to be mine. I confess that I am fooled into thinking that I am defined by what I have and what I do. I confess that these hands do not reflect how you lived and how I experienced you. Instead, I choose to hold my hands open. I choose to receive from you and give to others today. I choose generosity, right? Right? We have these opportunities where we're saying like, hey, I see that you have been generous to me, and so I'm going to practice this, all right? And then the last one, uh, we start with our hands folded um, across our chest, which is oftentimes a sort of like, I'm not interested. (laughs) Like, this isn't my responsibility, and you need to figure this out, and like, sorry, we're done, right? And we move from that uh, posture of cynicism to a posture of the cross with our hands sort of open to the world. Um, And so let's read this one together now also. Lord, I confess that I spend too much time preoccupied with my own issues. I confess my cynicism, entrenchment, and entitlement. I confess that these hands do not reflect how you lived and how I have experienced you. Instead, I choose openness to your ways and your mission, and I choose to embrace the adventure you call me into. I choose mission right so these are three postures and and guys i know that if you come from a background where you're like this feels very ritualistic this feels very some of you are like this feels very comforting and that's great and others of you are like why are we reciting prayers together it is not about again it's not about the words as they are written it's about a template to help you begin to enter into this prayer life like what would it look like for us every morning like before we even get out of bed to just be like okay All right, these are the ways that I'm getting up and I'm already swinging, but I'm going to surrender to you. These are all the ways that I anticipate going into the office and hating everyone and being mad about all of the problems and how they are not my responsibility and not my fault. But God, you are calling me into mission. You're calling me to take the posture of Jesus. And so I'm gonna invite you um, to engage in this prayer practice this week. Um, next week, uh, if for those of you who are joining us here, here's what we're gonna do we're gonna share what happened, all right? We're gonna take an opportunity to share what is God doing in your life. Maybe as a result of this prayer posture, of you engaging in this practicing act of faithfulness, or maybe it's just what is God doing through what we've been talking about this past season. How have you seen evidence of God's kingdom come? How have you seen this all coming together? Where have you seen joy? Where have you been learning about dependence or humility or trust? And we're gonna have an opportunity to share what God is doing as a result of all this. Where do we see God's kingdom coming? Um, So that's what we're gonna do next week. So I just encourage you, like, let's try. Let's see what happens, okay? All right, great. we are going to sing one more song together in response um, to what God is doing. And uh, I invite you to sing with us. And we're just going to uh, take a second to pray. We're going to quickly go through these prayer postures again. But this time I'm going to invite you to pray them in your heart the way that you need to based on your circumstances. All right? All right, let's pray. Father God, uh, we recognize and we see ourselves in, in Saul Saul. And the envy that he had. And we desire deeply to walk the path of David. To not become cynical about all of the things. And if we're going to walk in your way of love, we're going to need to adjust our posture. We're going to need to change the way we see things and the way that we're living these things out. And so, Father, we ask that as we begin to adjust our posture in the physical that our spiritual posture and our emotional posture and our mental posture will follow. And so I'm just going to invite everyone to just make those fighting fists. And I'm going to just stay quiet and give you an opportunity to speak to God about the things that you have been fighting with others and with God about. To a posture of surrender and just confess to God the ways that you surrender to him. across your chest to represent the cynicism that we are.